Amen. Good morning, friends. Oh, wow. We're, we're very responsive this morning. I like that. It's a good start. Uh, while I'm transitioning here, I just want to personally thank everybody for uh, their support of me as I completed seminary. It is uh, a huge weight off of my shoulders and off of Laura's as well, as she will tell you. And uh, we are just so profoundly thankful for this church and allowing me to finish my degree uh, in my time here. Uh, whether or not you know this, because we actually give money to the Dakota Baptist Convention, that money ends up going to what's called a cooperative program. And because of that, the tuition that I paid was actually at a really reduced rate um, because I was a member and obviously a pastor of a Southern Baptist church. So thank you all. Whether or not you knew that, you actually were participating in my ability to be able to finish this education. So thank you guys for that. If you have a Bible this morning, you'll want to turn to Luke chapter 2. Specifically, we're going to be in verses 41 through 52. And you can find that, I believe, on page 858 in your pew Bibles below you. And while you're doing so, I I just want to make this statement, uh, because I think many of you will agree with me. It's a blessing to be born in, to be born into, or around, or actually to just be existing here in the 21st century. Sure, many of us who were uh, born in the 90s and early 2000s may not be as resilient or as tough as some of our friends that were born prior to 1990, but I mean, think of all the blessings that we have, especially for those of us who are a little bit younger. Um, think of all the blessings we have. We, we have the majority of our lives with on-demand streaming movies and live TV. I, I mean, think about this. This is a mind-blowing thing. There is a point in time that didn't happen, you know, previous to the year 2000, that we could actually rewind live TV. Isn't that incredible? Nobody else is like, oh, okay. But let me, let me tell you why I'm specifically very thankful for this. Laura and I are very thankful for this because this actually happened last night. We're thankful for the ability to rewind, especially on streaming, because you're not going to believe this, but one of us will be watching a show and we'll, I don't know, we're just watching, we're hanging out, not really like paying attention, but we'll watch and, and then somebody will say something and maybe the volume is too low or maybe our minds were somewhere else and, and Laura will go, wait, what did they say? And I go, I don't know, I I couldn't hear or I wasn't paying attention either. And then luckily, Laura and her sheer kindness will rewind back and we'll watch however many minutes, sometimes it's been up to 10 minutes of things that we've missed, and uh, she'll rewind that back for us and we'll get to hear it all over again and then inevitably it happens again 30 minutes later. So I'm very thankful to be living in the 21st century where we get to rewind, right? And I think in some ways this morning in our text in Luke chapter 2, this is exactly what we need to do. We need to rewind and we need to pay attention and look at this story of Jesus as a boy in the temple. We need to rewind and pay attention. While often looked at as a transition moment from the end of the birth narrative into the beginning of Jesus' life and ministry, this passage, I believe, has significant insights and implications actually for the rest of Luke's gospel. As a reader of Luke's gospel, we are beginning, especially here in this passage, to see the beautiful artistry of how Luke is tying all of these things together, believe it or not, not just in chapter 2, but in chapter 1, all the way to the very end of the book of Luke, to where Jesus is resurrected. This passage is a first brushstroke, if you will, into the masterful artistry of Luke as he paints this picture of Jesus as the Messiah. And particularly, Luke is trying to get you to understand that Jesus is a servant king who did not look like the Messiah that many Jews thought he would be. And as Joel mentioned a few weeks ago, he and I are working together on this series called Portraits of Jesus. And what we're really doing is just taking some snapshots and looking at these specific passages, whether or not they're just our favorite passages or what, but looking at some specific passages within Matthew, Mark, and Luke 
and saying, hey, what can we learn from Jesus within these passages? So, with that said, why don't we go ahead and read in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 41, and we'll finish out the chapter. Read along with me. Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem, searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is a really neat passage. And one of the unique things I think that we're meant to see is, in some ways, Luke is actually highlighting the resurrection of Jesus, right? You see that within the text. Three days later, they find him, and they actually get to see who he is. And I'm not going to actually be talking about that, because that's the whole point of the book of Luke, is to make you read so much that you get to the end of it. But you see some of the ways that Luke is beginning to parallel Jesus' early life with the end of his earthly ministry. And it's a really, really neat passage. But with that said, I think there are three things that Luke is wanting to convey or to communicate about Jesus within this passage. So, the first thing is that Jesus is the Son of God. I think it's the first thing that we're supposed to be taking away from this passage. Jesus is the Son of God. And the next two points that we're going to be looking at are actually implications of Jesus being the Son of God. Second point is going to be Jesus is on the mission of God. And then finally, we'll look at Jesus is full of the wisdom of God. And don't worry about that. If you didn't get all of it, I will come back to it to make sure that you note-takers got all those points. At the forefront, I want to let you all know that typically what I do is I try to look and see if there's a structure that is just really ornate in terms of, hey, there's a structure that's going to land on a main point with a passage. But actually, I don't really feel that that's kind of the whole, I guess, gist of this passage here. The outline is not structured from the text, but actually what I'm doing is I'm just giving you observations that we see in the text and from the narrative as a whole. What we see here as Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is on the mission of God, and Jesus is full of the wisdom of God will actually be unfolded throughout the rest of the Gospel of Luke. So I'm going to be pointing out specific verses to justify those specific observations that I just talked about, but I think it's better for us to actually zoom out, as it were, on this passage and take a look at Jesus as Luke is introducing him within this gospel of Luke. So don't be alarmed if you're like, hey, I don't see this main point within the text. It's okay. That's the point, okay? So with that said, why don't we start with that first point? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Son of God. As we've read in our text this morning, Mary, Joseph, and the boy Jesus have traveled into Jerusalem for the celebration of the Passover. And right before this section, the section of verses that we read this morning, 
right before that section that we just read, we find Jesus and his parents actually also in the temple, and they are there according to the purification rite and also to the ceremony of circumcision for Jesus. I don't think it's coincidental then that Luke desires for you and me to see as readers that because of the prior section of verses and in our verses this morning, that the temple is a central facet of this post-birth narrative of Jesus. I think what Luke is actually going to be doing is actually unfolding this idea of temple and God dwelling among his people more and more as he unfolds the rest of his gospel. But why is this idea of temple, why is it important? Well, the first reason, I believe, I think, is to show that Jesus' earthly parents, they were striving to be faithful Jews by going to the temple. If that was the place where they could commune with God and be able to be obedient to him, that's where they were going to go. They were going to go to the temple. While obviously poor and with little means, as the last section teaches whenever they bring their sacrifices, Mary and Joseph modeled for Jesus deep devotion and faithfulness despite their circumstances. They continued to go to synagogue, they continued to go to the temple and model for Jesus what it looked like to be obedient to God. Many commentators suggest that Jesus is actually around 12 years old during this time, and he's actually being prepared for this idea uh, for his presentation known as being a son of the covenant, according to Exodus 13. So, son of a covenant in Exodus 13. And in Exodus 13, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is a part of the Passover celebration, Jewish parents were to present their firstborn sons to the Lord as a sign of actually their thankfulness and their gratitude to God, and to do this as a remembrance for God's deliverance of Israel out of the hand of Egypt in Exodus. So over time, this tradition or presentation of being a son of the covenant occurred when the boy was 13, which we might know today as the ceremony of Bar Mitzvah, right? This idea and this son of the covenant idea, um, some commentators believe that Jewish parents would actually take these boys before they were 13 and take them to temple so that they could just simply observe the vows and all the ceremony of these other boys before they actually entered into the vows. So I think Luke would have actually, you know, said, hey, like this is what he was doing there. If that was the case, he was such a good historian as you'll see in the rest of his narrative. But I think what Luke is trying to tell you is that Mary and Joseph were preparing him for this time. And ultimately, what we are seeing is this preparation for this pending day of consecration or set-apartness for Jesus as the Son of the Covenant. So, Mary and Joseph are really, really faithful in what they're doing and trying to take Jesus to the temple. I believe the other reason that this motif of the temple is central to the passage is because throughout the Old Testament, the temple is a place where God's glory dwells and where God's people gather. I just want to quickly run through just a quick biblical theology of the temple. So in Genesis, right, we have this idea and this understanding that God created everything in the earth, and he created man and woman especially so that they could enjoy his presence. But as we know in Genesis 3, we disrupted that. And then that fellowship, that presence that was constant with him was broken. And then ever since Genesis, there's a longing, there's a hopeful reunification of God and man, of God trying to dwell among his people. We see this with the tabernacle, and ultimately we see this in the temple. We see this, I think, really, really clearly, actually, in Second uh, Chronicles 7.1. And what happens is the temple is built, and 
Solomon prays a prayer of dedication for the temple. And then after this happens, fire comes down after this prayer from heaven and burns up all these sacrifices. And then the glory of the Lord settles on the temple. And as you and I both know, this temple, it eventually uh, gets ransacked and destroyed. And God's people are broken again. But they rebuild the temple as we see in Ezra and Nehemiah. And there's this, again, longing of God's glory to dwell on this temple. But the caveat is that whenever this temple was rebuilt, the glory didn't settle on it the way it did in Solomon's day. So I think one of the things that Luke is trying to show you is, hey, the glory is actually not settling, but actually within the temple now. Given this idea of God's presence residing in the temple, I want to suggest that Luke is making a statement about Jesus' divinity in a subtle and yet not so subtle way. Particularly, I think he's saying that Jesus is God and that as God and as God the Son specifically, he is present and dwelling among his people in the temple. It's a really big biblical theological idea, but I think this is what Luke is beginning to introduce to you to help you understand that God's presence is not going to simply reside in a specific place, but actually with his people. And we certainly see this in verses 46 and 47. Read along with me in those verses one more time. It says, After three days they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. Luke is giving us the flashing light. He's giving us the big sign right here. He's saying, look at this. This is important. Jesus is in the temple. God's son is here. And it's very interesting to see that those teachers who were hearing Jesus described as amazed by his answers. Remember, commentators believe that he's around 12 years old at this time. We're going to get into this later on, but I think their responses and even the response of his parents are another piece of evidence of Jesus' divinity as God the Son. I believe, though, that the biggest piece of evidence for Jesus being the presence of God in the temple is actually his response to Mary uh, in verse 49. Mary says to him in verse 48, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And then Jesus boldly states to his mother in verse 49, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In these first recorded words of Jesus within the book of Luke, we find Jesus not just simply aware of who his heavenly father is. I don't know if you saw the wordplay there. My, your father and I have been worried and in distress about you. And Jesus says, Do you not know that I should be in my father's house? So obviously Jesus has this awareness of who his heavenly father is. But ultimately, I believe that like God's presence, Jesus is stating that his presence is to be in the midst of God's people. And obviously we see that here within the temple. Jesus desires as God to be among and in the midst of his people. Well, I'm going to talk about Jesus' response more and more and the obvious wisdom that the young Jesus exuded. I think what's truly remarkable about this passage is the clear statement on Jesus' identity as the Son of God and as the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is making an introduction to you, Will, as him being the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. This isn't fully fleshed out here within this passage, but Luke gives us a glimpse, just a, a slight flash in the pan, if you will, of Jesus as a 12-year-old boy being the eventual resurrected Savior that we praise. In his response and how he 
goes about this section of verses here, we get to see the one who has existed for all time. Understanding, friends, who Jesus is, not just as the Savior and friend that he is, but also as the one who is truly God and truly man. It's an integral and important part of Christianity. This 12-year-old boy is the very same person of the Trinity that has always existed in eternity past. He was the very Word that all of creation was created by. And yet, with all of that power and with all of that eternity in him, He's the same one who existed on earth and exists even now in humanly flesh and has experienced human life just as we do, even as a 12-year-old awkward little boy. But why is this dual nature of God being both fully human and fully God so important? Why, why, why do we need to believe this? I actually think the New City Catechism answers this question for us really, really well in questions 21 through 23. Hear uh, these words and, and these questions and answers from that catechism. It says, what sort of redeemer is needed to bring us back to God? One who is truly human and also truly God. Why must the redeemer be truly human? That in human nature he might on our behalf perfectly obey the whole law and suffer the punishment for human sin. The natural question then is, why must the redeemer be truly God? That because of his divine nature, his obedience and suffering would be perfect and effective. There are countless books and countless works written to help our minds try to wrap our minds around and to understand this idea of the mystery of Jesus being both fully God and yet at the same time fully man. But the simple idea that we can learn from our passage this morning is that God the Son made his fleshly dwelling with man and did so so that he might be a perfect example for us, a perfect example of perfection, and yet at the same time, this atoning sacrifice that we all need because of our rebellion and sin against God. And how does God secure redemption for those who place their trust in this fully God and fully man? He does this by coming down himself. He comes down as an eternal God in human flesh. He doesn't come with a suit of armor as a fierce warrior. He doesn't come as one who came to conquer an earthly kingdom. No, he came, one who, he came as one who came and took on human flesh, even as a 12-year-old boy. This is a marvelous truth to ponder and a miraculous thing to believe. In no other religion do we see the God of the universe humbling himself in flesh like we do in Christianity. And he does this not just to be simply an example of right living and wise living for people to see and to follow a pattern of, but he does this to be the atoning sacrifice for the sin of all those who would place their faith in him. If you have not believed in this truth of Christianity, this idea of God being both fully human and fully man, and him humbling himself in fleshly obedience... I pray that that would be the case today, and we would love to talk to you about that. But today, we pray that you would place your hope in this one who humbled himself in flesh. The second thing I think we see within this passage is that Jesus is on the mission of God. Jesus is on the mission of God. So he's not just the Son of God, but he's on the mission of God. 
Read again with me Jesus' reply to his mother in verse 49. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? In some translations, or perhaps in the footnote of your Bibles, you might see that that last statement is translated, I think, just as faithfully as, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, before we get into understanding this verse, I want to say at the forefront, especially for those of you who are kids and teenagers in here, this is not permission for you as a young person, just as a 12-year-old Jesus did, to, to say, um, hey, I, I get to rebel, and I get to have a free pass in obeying my parents. That's not, that's not what he's saying here. I can easily see some of you in here uh, trying to pass on eating your veggies and uh, saying to your parents, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? And my business is to indulge and to delight in this triple chocolate fudge delight ice cream. I must be about my father's business. That's not, that's not what this is saying. And I know that seems ridiculous maybe to some of the adults in the room, but I, I can assure you that there are people that use this verse in that way as a free pass to say, well, I've got this internal feeling and this calling that's just totally individualized to myself and I'm going to do it. And despite all the wise counsel that might come to them saying, hey, don't do that, that's not what this verse is saying. It's like, oh, now you get to do that. That's not, that's not for you. Um, and I'll give you a couple of reasons why. To clear this up, for those of you who might be tempted to want to use this particular verse in that way, remember, first and foremost, while God is your heavenly Father, you are not the Son of God. Given the context of this passage, the main thrust of the book of Luke is to show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the servant king to both the Jews and Gentiles. And I think we can easily deduce that using this verse to say, hey, I'm going to go rogue and I'm going to rebel against my parents or uh, to do my own thing, that's a poor application and understanding of this verse. Okay? Everybody clear with that? Okay, good. But as we get back on track, I do believe that Jesus is trying to make clear for Mary and Joseph that his life is meant to be wholly devoted to the purpose of God the Father. And as I've stated earlier, God's purpose in the person of Jesus is that he would be the perfect display of who God is in human flesh and to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Often this passage gets confused for some sort of perceived kind of rebellion by Jesus, that's wrong, I think. Or perhaps some lack of care by Mary and Joseph in taking care of their son, that's wrong as well. But as Luke seems to continue to try to unfold who Jesus is to the reader more and more, I think more accurately, this is a moment of Jesus' understanding of who he is as the Son of God. And it's being revealed ever so carefully to the reader. I think Luke is really gracious to us. He doesn't just right at the forefront say, hey, this is the Son of God, even though he's kind of overwhelmed us in chapter 1, right, by God incarnating in flesh as this little human baby. But he's not doing this just right away. He's going to let his narrative and his biographical sketch of Jesus unfold over time. And what Luke wants us to show and wants us to know here in this passage this morning is that Jesus' whole life, it's the beginning of it, Jesus' whole life is going to be devoted to the purpose of glorifying the Father. So how does Jesus do that in our passage? How does he glorify the Father as a 12-year-old boy? Sure, we could, we could point uh, to how he asks questions and, and how he answers some questions in verse 47. We could definitely point to that. We could point to his parents' astonishment, their amazement at what he's doing in verse 48. I mean, even the answer that he gives in verse 49, it shows us his devotion and just his wisdom that is so unique to a 12-year-old boy. 
But I actually believe it's in verse 51 that we see Jesus' devotion to his Father best. Read with me in verse 51. And he, Jesus, went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Friends, Jesus' obedience to God and being on mission for God did not result in his insistence to stay in the temple to teach, and it didn't result in his insistence to rebuke his parents for not really understanding who he is. But instead, what we see as we see Jesus being on the mission of God, what we see is humble submission to his earthly mother and father, where he would continue to grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor. We sang earlier, and Joel talked about this, I think, so, so well, that Jesus, in his suffering and also in his living, there was not a trace or stain of sin. This passage, I believe, gives us a real glimpse into the perfect obedience of Jesus, even as a young boy. Many of us can recall whenever we were 12 years old and how perhaps reluctant we were to want to obey our parents and to submit to them in loving fashion. Some of you may have not been like me, but I can tell you in my heart and mind, I struggled with that. Jesus never struggled with that. Jesus shows his purpose and his mission of being on the purpose of God and on the mission of God by humbly submitting himself to these earthly parents and this earthly authority. Yes, his, his mission and his purpose in life, it's going to be ultimately seen in him accomplishing the mission of dying on the cross for the sins of God's people. But friends, a major part of the mission of Jesus was his sinless life being evidenced in humble submission to living human life, despite being God divine. Remember, he was God divine, even as a 12-year-old boy. Jesus' mission of God is his obedience to God. Jesus' mission to God is his obedience to God. And guess what? That's also true for those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus and make him our Lord and Savior. And I think in light of that, there are two things we ought to consider as we see Jesus' missional living for God. First and foremost, if we've been given any sort of earthly authority, just like Jesus had some earthly authority, I say some, he had all earthly authority. But I think one of the ways, and perhaps one of the things that most evidences God's mission in our lives is the way that we either use or do not use the authority of God to showcase our obedience to God. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus could have flipped the switch and obviously totally corrected Mary and Joseph and said, hey, you knock it off, I'm going to be right here and I'm going to continue to teach because that's what I'm meant to do. I am the Son of God. He could have done that. But he didn't. Instead, what we find is him emptying himself, as Paul will say in Philippians. He empties himself to obedience and submission to his parents. Christian, I I want you to consider, and I urge you to consider, the authority that God has given you here on this earth, whether it's a lot or it's a little. I want you to consider it, to use it, and perhaps maybe not use it, to display who your Heavenly Father is. Remember, Jesus empties himself here in the flesh to show who he trusts in and who he's on mission for. So use it when it glorifies God and do not use it when it glorifies God. The second thing I believe that we can learn from Jesus being on the mission of God is that oftentimes what God calls us to is normal, everyday obedience. Normal, everyday, simple obedience. Jesus displayed, I believe, his Trinitarian nature by submissively leaving from Jerusalem to go back home 
with Mary and Joseph to Nazareth. Sometimes, and actually I say more often than not, the evidence of God's grace in our lives is not going to be by your ability to do some amazing feat in the name of Jesus Christ. Some of us may be called to go to the hardest places and perhaps even die for our faith. But friends, what I want you to consider is that perhaps the evidence of God's grace in your life will be by your faithful obedience to be a follower of Jesus while you're a son or daughter, a mother or father, a grandparent, an employee or boss, whatever stage of life that you're in. Your faithful obedience can be seen in the normal everyday things. I want to talk to those of you who are young in your faith or just young in general. So if you're 18 and under, uh, let this be the time that the youth pastor specifically talks to you. As you are living in your parents' household as children and teenagers, I want you, especially if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to show that you're on mission for God by honoring your father and mother. I want you to do that by not making every little thing a fight for your parents. If you truly believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is one of the most simple and most practical ways that you can show that you are on mission for God is by obeying and honoring your mom and dad. For college students that may be here in the room, one of the ways that you can show that you're on mission for God is by submitting yourself to a local church and joining that church in membership. I know these things don't sound grandiose or or marvelous at all, but young people, I, I want you to understand that these little steps, these little ways of normal everyday faithfulness and obedience, they actually get you ready and they prepare you for the times that God might call you to those times where your obedience could be a little bit more costly or where it would be a little bit more than minor inconvenience. Jesus' life and his mission of obedience to God by the cross, him approaching that cross surely began in moments like these where he would humbly submit himself to not just God's authority but his earthly authority as well. Normal, everyday obedience in the small things. That's what I want to urge you guys to. I think the last thing that Jesus wants to show us within our passage is that Jesus is, the full, is full of the wisdom of God. Jesus is the full of the wisdom of God. How do we know this or how do we see this within this passage? I think it's littered all over, but is it because he's so good at playing hide and seek with his mom and dad? No, you don't show any wisdom in that. But I do think Luke gives us some clear details to show that Jesus, even as a little boy, is, is very wise. Now, I th- think the first thing that we should see is that Jesus, according to verse 46, look at this with me, Jesus is sitting among the teachers. He's sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. We see that in verse 46. Now, I realize on the service level, sitting may not look like a significant act uh, to the naked eye, but... According to many commentators and and many uh, people that are knowledgeable of the Jewish faith, sitting was a posture for authoritative teaching, as also in the synagogue. Obviously, Luke's going to pick up on this idea later when Jesus teaches at a synagogue in Luke chapter 4, and he actually ends up getting rejected after he teaches there. But we see this idea of Jesus being an authoritative teacher and being wise and sitting most clearly when Jesus does this in Matthew 5 through 7, right? Jesus teaches the greatest sermon that he's ever done in the Sermon on the Mount by sitting. And so he shows his authority 
and this capability of being full of the wisdom of God in that passage in Matthew 5 through 7. So without belaboring this point too much, the fact that Jesus, as a 12-year-old boy, is found to be sitting with these teachers who are likely older than him uh, is, a, is Luke's way of saying, hey, this boy is unusual uh, compared to, rest, to the rest of the 12-year-old boys that exist in that time. And there's also significance in the kind of language that Luke uses to describe the teachers and all who heard him in verse 47, and even his parents in verse 48 and what they were seeing and hearing. Luke uses descriptors like amazed and astonished. And I think, again, to just convey this idea of Jesus' incredible knowledge and wisdom for his age. I mean, Luke just even goes as far as to say that after Jesus replies to his mother in verse 49, both of his parents, they just simply don't understand what he's saying. Do you see that in verse 50? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. They, they still didn't get it after he said these things. Finally, Luke just very plainly tells us in the transition verse at the end of our passage this morning, in verse 52, that Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. While obviously very wise, even at his age, Jesus will continue to appear and will actually be seen as wiser as Luke unfolds his biographical sketch of Jesus. Why do I bring all this up? Why, why is it important that we understand that Jesus is wise? Well, primarily, hopefully, to further convince you that Jesus as the Son of God clearly possessed this omniscience or all-knowingness of God, even at the age of 12. He was fully divine at the age of 12. So I'm just trying to convince you simply first that Jesus is the Son of God. But I also do not want us to miss on some of the implied details of Jesus' wisdom. First, because Mary and Joseph are taking Jesus to Passover before going through this actual ceremony of Jesus being a son of the covenant at age 13, I believe that Luke is telling us here that Jesus was raised in a household that valued the Scriptures, and that Jesus was taught and submersed into the Scriptures that the Jews had, even from a very young age. Well, Jesus was very clearly filled with divine knowledge and wisdom as God the Son, Luke doesn't hesitate to tell us that in verse 52, that he grew and increased in wisdom, and in verse 40, actually, in the previous section as well, and the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. He tells us that he was growing and being filled with wisdom. This was a passive thing that was happening to him. Parents, I hope that we can take a lesson from this. Jesus, the second member of the Trinity who possesses all of the knowledge of God because he is God, still learned and grew in wisdom from being taught the scriptures by his parents. I mean, think about that for a moment. Our eternal Savior valued learning and being filled with the knowledge of scripture. I know that many of you are in here, are like me, and you're right in the throes of hopefully discipling your children to Jesus Christ. And I hope the primary avenue of you doing that is by you all spending time in God's Word together. And I'm sure that for both the parents and the kids alike in the room, there are many times where you do not want to go and spend time reading and learning the Bible. I'm sure that's many of us in here. I want to encourage you, please do not stop doing this. If the God of the universe found it to be valuable to spend time being taught the Scriptures, kids, I think you can endure the loving efforts of your parents to disciple you to Jesus Christ. Parents, if you have not started this, or if you need help 
if you need resources on how to disciple or to teach your children about who Jesus is and about the Bible, please do come and talk to any of the elders. On the back of our bulletin, there are some faces on there and names. Find one of those guys, and they will be able to help you understand how to disciple, their, disciple your children. To the rest of the church, we have many, many opportunities and really great opportunities for you to actually come alongside of parents to be able to disciple them in the ways of Jesus Christ. I would love to talk to you about how you can do that. There's so many different ways. Serving in the nursery, serving in kids' Sunday school classes, children's church, and Wednesday night youth group, they are invaluable ways that we as a church, as South Canyon Baptist Church, comes alongside of parents who are trying to fulfill their duty of raising their kids to know and to trust in Jesus Christ. It's our duty then, friends, who are wanting to see those kids come to Jesus Christ as well, it's our duty then to help disciple and teach those children God's word. Like I said, we have many opportunities for that. Come and talk to me about it. And we do this. Friends, we do not have things like nursery or children's church or youth group because they're hip and cool programs that we ought to have. We do these things for the very purpose and for the very fact that we hope to see the gospel trusted and by those students and by those children. That's our vision as a church. We want to see kids coming to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And if you want to know how to get involved with that, come and talk to me. The second final reason I want us to see that Jesus is filled with the wisdom of God is so that we might see as Jesus, who is the Son of God and was on the mission of God, he was filled with the wisdom of God because as he states, he must be in his Father's house. Well, I could certainly talk about how it's important for people to come to church and, and that it's good to join a church. I think I'm talking uh, or preaching to the choir here. I could talk about that. I think what Luke is trying to show us here is that for Jesus and hopefully for us as well, being intentional about being in the presence of God, communing with God, was an integral part of Jesus' life and ministry. You see, the real reason I believe Jesus was filled with the wisdom of God is because more than anything, more than anything, he longed and yearned to be in the presence of his Father. I mean, think about his words here in the end of Luke. Oh Lord, oh Lord, why have you forsaken me? It was hell on earth for him to not be in the presence of his Father. And for Jesus, even as a 12-year-old boy, he desired and longed to be in the presence of his Father. Jesus kept his eyes fixed on the very one who sent him and was filled by the Spirit of the one who would lead him. Simply, Jesus beheld God. Jesus beheld God. Brothers and sisters, our hope to be filled with the wisdom of God surely begins by asking, God, we need wisdom. James says this and picks up on this idea very clearly. You have not wisdom because you ask not, right? But it also comes from a deep hunger and desire to be filled by God's presence. Our prayer ought to be the prayer of the song that we're going to close with today. This verse is so great. It says, Be thou my wisdom. I'm talking about God. Be thou my wisdom and thou my true word. I ever with thee and thou with me, Lord. Thou my great father and I thy true son. Thou in me dwelling and I with thee one. Friends, if we become what we behold, then let us behold our most gracious and our most wise God just like Jesus did. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the example of Jesus. 
the example of longing and yearning for your presence. But God, more than anything, we thank you, God the Father, for sending Jesus so that he might be the holy, righteous, and perfect one to atone for our sins. So God, we just ask that in this moment, as we respond in song, that the words of this hymn would be true, that you would be our vision, and that we would be filled so much with you, and that we would delight so much with you, that our hearts would cry and amen what Paul wrote, that our hearts have the same spirit of adoption as Jesus, and we get to cry, Abba, Father. Help us to do that to your glory and to your name this morning. Amen.